Greetings friends, and welcome to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. On this show, Simon Perrins is back for part two of our delve into Moorcock, this time with a more specific focus on comics, and we're joined in Derry and Tom's by Guy Lawley, author of the five-issue comic series Saga of the Man-Elf. I think the best introduction to this comic comes from Michael Moorcock himself, and he said in the introduction to issue one, Jerry Cornelius was conceived in a two-room flat in Colville Terrace, reached some sort of maturity in a four-room flat in Ladbrook Grove, and achieved mortality in a Blenheim Crescent basement. All real places, all real times, almost all real stories, all from a little area of West London, once famous for its thieves' kitchens and brothels, then for its bohemians, its artists, its political radicals, now a yuppie ghetto called Notting Hill Gate. The yuppies, it was, drove Jerry out of his tribal homeland. There, as intimated in The Condition of Muzak, the fourth volume of the original tetralogy, Miss Brunner, Frank Cornelius, Bishop and Mitzi Beasley, and the rest, have finally triumphed, and Ladbrook Grove is a polar line dividing wealthy whites and poor blacks. This is Thatcherist social simplification at its most obvious. Here's the last stages of the Thousand Year Reich, an apocalypse played out amongst the teacups of some terrifying Tory fate. We are engulfed by blandness. We're drowning under enormous, nostalgic blancmange. Jerry was a response to the pieties of the mid-sixties, to the middle-class socialists and salt-of-the-earth Tories, to the fantasies of power which consoled the hippie movement, to the realities of imperialism which seemed weaker than they do now. I don't think Jerry is an inappropriate response to the eighties and nineties, and the figures of Brunner and Co are just as familiar today where they exist in, if anything, higher profile than ever. As a response to the contradictions and hypocrisies of our particular decades, Jerry attracted other writers who, spontaneously, began writing their own stories about him while Maldine began a comic strip, written by myself and Mike Harrison, and later also drawn by Richard Glyn Jones, which ran for some while in International Times during 1969 and 1970. Some stories, by Brian Aldiss, Norman Spinrad, Langdon Jones, M. John Harrison, James Salis, Maxim Jakubowski, and me, were collected in an anthology called The Nature of the Catastrophe, which was published by Hutchinson in 1971, but never reprinted. Jerry's a Londoner. He and the city are a singular identity, but he's also meant as a sort of everyman figure for the last half of the 20th century, seeking strategies for survival in a world which grows technically if not socially, more complex. Where the powerful adapt and transmute into guises increasingly difficult to recognise. His resistance is not always conventional, nor is it always to conventional threats. His defeats are frequently spiritual defeats, defeats of idealism and hope which drive him into catatonia or cynicism or, occasionally, despair. As a wide boy, he's usually pretty pathetic. As a sophisticate, he can be almost comical. And as a James Bond type, a comparison made by the press, but never by me, he's an abject failure. These are characteristics which, to me at any rate, make him attractive. Jerry is least attractive when he most closely achieves the approval of fashionable journalists and hip clubsters. Approval which put him in some considerable danger during his glory days of the 70s, when we were both living in higher profile than we usually enjoyed, and getting some serious ego problems. Stunned, I fell through the stage at a Notting Hill Carnival gig. 
Stunned, Jerry fell through the stage at a Westway concert. Such events were to bring us, and perhaps our readers, back to reality. What power we had was either transitory or illusory, and the price for hanging on to that was too high. The people who had always had the power, the captains of industry, the bankers, the church, the landed gentry, the royal family, the white, predominantly male elite, still held on to the power. An OBE to a beetle was a bit like making Emilio Zapata a freeman of the City of London. They sounded good, but didn't mean much. They didn't cost a thing. But all this still wasn't enough to satisfy Miss Brunner and Bishop Beasley. They demanded hearts and minds. Like Big Brother, by 1984, Mrs Thatcher was insisting we love her, too. I don't think Jerry could love her for very long. I don't think the man-elf loved her at all. I don't write much JC stuff myself these days, so I doubly welcome the appearance of the Man-Elf and the continuing incarnations of the Cornelius Troupe in the eternal struggle between muscular humanism and dynamic greed, between a life of interesting struggle and a life of dull security, between justice and all the forms which tyranny takes, domestic and public, between virtue posing as vice and vice masquerading as virtue, between the music of the intellect and the quasi-rational tone, the commanding rasp, the threatening bark, the general lunatic cacophony of our present bewildered leaders who must soon look for another target to blame for their own remarkable incompetence, the collapse of their primitive economies. I welcome the man-elf. Let's hope he can stop them before they go any further. Michael Moorcock, Marrakesh, Morocco, May 1989. Mm. The cosmic cycle continues. How desperately we need the Man-Elf to return. We're back in Derry and Tom's, and once again I've got Simon with me for part two of our little dive into Moorcock Art and Comics, but also I've got with me Guy Lawley. Now, you'll remember from the last episode, if you listened to it, that we, we, we name-checked Guy, because back in the day, many, many years ago, probably sometime in the mid-90s, I was in either a second-hand bookshop or a comic shop on Annalee Road in Hull, and I picked up from a basket issue three of Saga of the Man-Elf, with a wonderful, colourful cover of Jerry Cornelius in front of a Union Jack with a guitar and a needle gun. And straight away, I was obs- I became obsessed with tracking down the other issues. And it wasn't until the edge of the internet and eBay that I finally managed to get the other four issues of Saga of the Man-Elf. As I was talking to Simon a couple of weeks ago, I thought, I need to track down whoever this was who wrote this comic. So I went online with the joy of the internet and searched Guy Lawley. And the only Guy Lawley, that, that is the cover, the very cover, which I will put in the show notes... So everybody can see what we're talking about, because as usual, talking about visual stuff and an audio medium is <laughs> never entirely ideal, but we can put it in the show notes. I found Guy Lawley, and the entry I found online was about Guy as an academic who looks at the history of comics and other related fields and subject matter. I'll mention a couple of those things if we go along, I'm sure. And I dropped him a line, and he said, yes, I am the guy who wrote Saga of the Man-Elf. So it's our absolute pleasure to welcome to Breakfast in Rooms podcast, Guy Lawley. Welcome, Guy. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's great to be here. 
it's an absolute pleasure for us because this Saga of the Man Elf is something that was just on my shelf for so many years. And I had that one issue and I finally gathered them and I went along. And it's, it's such a pleasure to have you here to talk about this stuff. One of the things that I kind of looked at when I was looking at your entry is that as well as looking at the history of comics, intriguingly, you were doing uh, a piece on the Ben Dare dots of Roy Lichtenstein. And when I saw that, I thought, what the hell does that mean? And mm -hmm. then, so I Googled it, and there there was a picture, and instantly the pop art that's been on at least half a dozen people's walls over the last 30 or 40 years of people that I've known was right there. I mean, we'll get into other things as well, but why are you so interested in the comics as a medium? Well, I started reading them when I was about seven, and I suppose my friends were, were reading Beano and Dandy and... I have a friend who was obsessed with a comic called Sparky, which I never got the point of at all. And I picked up quite early on a Marvel comic, and I was hooked pretty much straight away. And the first one I can remember reading, I think it might have been the first one I bought, was an early Fantastic Four annual. And it was the one where Reed and Sue, Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Girl, get married. And it's a totally insane story. And they crammed in every single Marvel superhero uh, that they could really. I think they got everyone in there and pretty much all the Marvel supervillains who were being published at the time. I think it came out in 65. So you already had a lot of people like Hulk and Spider-Man and the Avengers were established and a lot of the baddies. And it was utterly insane. So, but it was a good start. It was a good start. I also love the Batman TV show. But when I, when I stumbled across a Batman comic, which was, you didn't often see comics in those days. We're talking about, uh, yeah, mid-60s, 66, probably. When I stumbled across a Batman comic, they were never like the TV show. I remember, I think the first one I bought, he was guest starring, uh, or he was co-starring with the Green Lantern. And the Green Lantern was nothing like the TV show. And there was no Robin, and there was no Aunt Harriet. And, you know, seven, eight-year-old me is going, what the heck? You know, this isn't Batman. And so the Marvel stuff, which which there was no comparison with TV shows or movies at all in those days, was just in and of itself was pure and was it was like a as Alan Moore has described, it's like it's like crack for kids. Marvel. Mm. I was pretty much hooked. And then there's a pathway there for me into taking an interest in the dots, because of course Roy Lichtenstein, the pop artist, gets his dots from the comics that he copied, mm. appropriated pictures from is the, the way he would put it. But um, he copied comics, didn't he? Let's face it. And when you read the comics, you can print, you can see a lot of the dots. You're not supposed to. You're supposed to see pink faces and pale blue skies. But the comics are printed so crudely that you can certainly see quite a few dots. What he did was make them much more obvious. But... My dad worked in a lab, and he brought me home from his lab when I was 10, a microscope. They were chucking out all their old, lovely, old-fashioned microscopes, which now I think of as looking like 19th century devices. They made of brass, no black and silvery bits, all brass and bronze and yellowy, goldy colours, Be beautiful object. And he was a scientist, and he, I'm sure he thought I would take a scientific interest in flies' wings and the interesting bits on on the underside of leaves, which I did a bit, but mostly I looked at my comics through a microscope and I, I just reveled in a whole new level of beauty of all these dots. 
fantastic. I love them. Um, we lived in Canada for a year. And when we came back on the plane, most of my comics and the microscope had to stay there. So that was pretty much the end for that for the for the time being of the obsession with uh, looking down a microscope at comics. But that that definitely never left me. Mm. Love of the comics, which I continued to read, and uh, the the love of the dot. And to cut a long story short, I found out that um, nobody had really gone into the printing of the dots or the pre-printing the production processes that make those dots. When I was a kid, I, I tried to recreate them with felt-tip pens, but I could never get the regular geometric, mathematically precise pattern of the dot, mm. that same size of the dot. Lichtenstein, of course, had his ways of doing it on canvas. I couldn't do it with my felt-tip pens on paper. This was long before I'd even heard of Lichtenstein. Mm. Frustrating. I had no idea how Jack Kirby and Gene Colan and Neil Adams, all these great people, how they did it. I thought they did it somehow. Uh, I had no idea that they made black and white artwork and someone else using some clever technology added the dots in. But that's what started it all off. So you're fascinated with comics as a kid. And I understand you you went on to be a GP as an I did, adult. that's right, yeah, yeah. You're a GP. How? One of the questions we always ask new guests on this podcast is how did you come to be involved what's kind of what's your history with michael mocock's fiction and genre fiction in general and of course you go on to end up writing in the late 90s sorry the late 80s uh, a comic based upon a lot of the characters that michael mocock invented for the jerry cornelius um, chronicles so how did you come across mocock well first thing to say about that comic is what an enormous privilege it was to get to play in his sandbox, as they mm. say, to use his characters. Um, it, it was an amazing thing. I, I enjoyed it so much. So my history with Moorcock <clears throat> goes back again to, I guess I was about 13. I'm sure I'd read some Alan Garner, um, uh, Weird Stone of Brisingerman, Elidor, Redshift, I think probably some of those, Owl Service maybe, and... I was still into the comics, but the comic I loved best of all by that point was the Conan comic by Roy Thomason. Mm. I just thought that was fantastic. It was a real breath of fresh air. You know, it was quite different from the superhero comics, but it was published by Marvel, who were my favourite old superhero publishers. And I was on holiday in Cornwall, and in, a, in one of the seaside towns down there, I found on a, a spinner rack, the same sort of rack that you would get comics on, they would have these um, cheap paperbacks in the seaside shops. I think a lot of them were remainders. I suspect they were. And this was, and there were, there were a bunch of American paperbacks going cheap. And one of them had a fantastic, kind of, uh, lo almost Lovecraftian cover. It was called The Spell of Seven. It was edited by Elsprong de Camp, who'd written some Conan stories mm. in the Robert E. Howard vein. And this, it had seven stories in it. And I bought it because it had a Conan short story. Now, I'd, I'd read the comics up to this point. I think we talk about 1970, 71, I think, 71, 72. Uh, but I'd never read any Robert E. Howard. So it was my first exposure to a Robert E. Howard Conan story, which I liked very mm. much. And I think the Fritz Leiber story in there as well, Fafford and Gray Mouse's story. But what I really liked was the Moorcock story. There was an Elric story. I don't know if you know the book, but it's... Um, 
Kings in Darkness. Mm. Not one of the greatest. And I gather it's a bit of a co-write with Jim Cawthorne. Uh, it's one of them that Mike doesn't hold in very high regard. But I loved it. I thought Elric and Moonglum were fantastic characters. You had lots of Stormbringer stuff in, in that um, in that story. And you had Elric being weakened when he was kept away from Stormbringer and all this stuff. It, it, that hooked me as well. So then I was I was after Moorcock paperbacks from that point onward. And uh, all the Mayflower books coming into the bookshops on a fairly regular basis. So I found it easier to find Coram and Hawkmoon. Then I went back into Elric um, with Stormbringer and Steeler of Souls and uh, never looked back, really. Mm. It was a Conan comic that, that got me into, into Moorcock. Yeah, I think we, we spoke on the last episode about the Savage Sword of Conan and Roy Thomas and Barry Windsor Smith. I think he was the first artist on the Roy Thomas Conan stories, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Yeah. John, John Bashima came later. That's right. It was Barry Windsor Smith who drew the, the coming of Elric in the uh, in the Savage Sword of Conan, which was based on the the image was based on the Jack Garn Stormbringer cover with his his green pixie hat and his kinky boots. Yeah, and people never stopped talking about the pixie hat, and they kept <laughs> for it, but it wasn't really his fault. But yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, I guess that was probably the only Elric image that he'd seen. That. Yeah, I, I, I understand. He, he asked uh, the Marvel editor, or Roy Thomas, he said, who is this Elric character? So they just sent him a copy of the Ace um, paperback, which had that yeah. picture on the cover. Yeah. And, uh, and, yeah. And, the, and the rest is history. <laughs> so Tragically. Yeah, uh, but no, great, but great comics. I mean, I, I, yeah. I, I was so excited when those two worlds smushed together in, in an issue of Conan. It was mm. color comic Conan the Barbarian. Savage yeah. Conan was, for most of its incarnations, was a big black and white magazine. Yeah, so we that's right. The, the color Conan comic. Yeah, it was the Conan the Barbarian. Fifteen, comics, wasn't yeah. It? Yeah. Conan the Barbarian. Mm. Yeah. That was very exciting. Very, very exciting. I mean, I yep. copied pictures out of those. I, I made coloured copies of the covers. I, I was obsessed with those. Yeah. I never came across those until years and years and years later. The only um, copies of... I had two copies of The Savage Sword of Conan, which I bought in the 1980s, in uh, a Spanish holiday resort called Palamos. Wow. Uh, I was in Palamos with my parents, and bored shitless, because, you know... Okay, sun and sand is okay, but when you're 13, 14 years old, what you really want is is swords and a little bit of action. And I found a shop that sold records and comics, so I bought Love Over Gold by Dire Straits on vinyl. I mean, I'm in Spain. I've got no record player. But I bought, <laughs> I bought Love Over Gold by Dire Straits, and I bought two issues of The Savage Sword of Conan in Spanish. <laughs> oh, in Spanish. Right. Spanish. Well, wow. it didn't have any in English. So, <laughs> so all I could do was look at the pictures. And I've still got those two issues upstairs. I've still, I've still got them. Excellent. I keep meaning to go on eBay and see if they're worth anything. But I don't know, just as a, um, I suppose, uh, a sentimental thing. I quite like mm. having them. But I, I had no idea, probably until 10 years ago, that Elric had appeared in Conan comics. And it was only through picking up collections, which was super, yeah. super exciting. But there's, yeah. uh, I mean, Barry Windsor Smith's artwork was just beautiful anyway. Yeah. So the idea that you get Conan and Elric, okay, with Pixie Hat, <laughs> as, as, as a Bocock and a Robert E. Howard fan, was just a thing of wonder, really. It was, wasn't it? And I think Zionbarg works really well. Queen Zionbarg works mm. really well. And, um, uh, and, and you've got um, Prince Gaynor in there as well. The visuals are great. The story was written by Mike, and again, co-written. 
And Cawthorn, who, who is his great collaborator and, and on the look of Elric, but also um, influenced some of the stories. So it was a co-write. And uh, I, mean, I gather Thomas stuck very closely to, to the story, using bits of dialogue. And, you know, it's, um, it's a particularly good two-part story. It's really appropriate as well, I think, because Conan is this sort of primal figure in sword and sorcery and fantasy. And then Elric is like, he's like a kind of 2.0 version. He's like the more sophisticated, more interesting, more developed, more three-dimensional figure. And for them to sort of meet up, it is like a continuum of, well, this is this is fantasy and this is how this this rung of fantasy started and yeah. this is how it developed, you know. And yeah, true. Yeah, I, my, my friend had those I don't know how he got hold of them. He was about the like late eighties. He had those. He had those comics, and we were reading the Elric uh, books. And he was like, "Oh, just have a look at this." And it's like, "Oh wow, this is pretty amazing." He's in comics as well, you know. Little did I know that there was this huge storied history of Morcock with comics at the time. I was just reading the novels. But it's like an additional yeah. little kind of angle as well, isn't it? Because we know that in the Morcock books, Elric has his team ups with other versions of the Eternal yeah. Champion. Is there an argument here? Is there an argument? that Conan is an aspect of the Eternal Champion. I wouldn't necessarily go that far, but there's a couple of other aspects to that. One is I've actually written half-jokingly, well, maybe 70 <laughs> that that when Elric enters the world of Conan in the comic, the Marvel Universe, and I think at that point, Moorcock's multiverse sort of annexes the Marvel Universe. Moorcock's multiverse took over the Marvel Universe long before there was a Marvel multiverse, which has come along in the movies much more recently, and, and to be fair, comics even before in the movies. So, yeah, I think actually that the Marvel Universe and the Marvel multiverse is just a subset of Mike's multiverse. Uh, which Mind is, uh, blown. <laughs> which, if nothing else, reminds us that, that Mike um, invented the multiverse, as yeah. would anyway. Um, which is something that gets forgotten these days, even though there are we got multiverses up the wazoo. You know. Yeah, well, that's something that we comment on as often as we possibly can without boring people shitless. Glad to hear it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Elric's appeared in the Savage Sword of Conan. You're reading all your comics. And, of course, by this point, there are numerous adaptations of, um, of, of Moorcock stories in comics as well. And I think Roy Thomas actually wrote some of those as well, didn't he? Roy Thomas wrote the Elric of Mel Nibane adaptation. He wrote yes. the the um, Caesar Fair. I think he did Coram. Mm. So, mm. Yeah. So what what was your take on those? I thought they started off very well and went sadly downhill fairly quickly. Mm. I don't think they were great sellers, and I think they had to use uh, talent, particularly artists who weren't as good as the original art fairly quickly and I think that was wonderful and I, and I know that's one of the reasons uh, a major reason why Mike actually put a stop to them before before they got as far as the Stormbringer adaptation it was done years later when Craig Russell who was the original Marvel Conan artist yeah after sorry Marvel Elric artist after the team up when they started to put Elric in Marvel magazines first epic magazine Craig Russell was the artist. Hmm. And then he went over to First or Pacific. I think it was Pacific first and then First, Second, uh, published. Uh, various people published that, that, that run, that series of Elric and then Coram and then Hawkmoon. 
and Craig Russell started it off, but very quickly it was taken over by other people. And and uh, he came back and did uh, a, a highly superior version of Stormbringer many years later. Was that written by Roy Thomas? I can't remember. It might have been written by Pete Craig Russell himself. I think it was. Um, I have a, um, I have an inkling that he adapted um, it himself. Yeah. I think he I think he may well have done. Yeah. And uh, my take on on that is I'm not a hundred percent convinced by Russell's Elric. Uh, very pretty, perhaps a bit too pretty. It's not gritty enough. Uh, I don't. I, I think you've spoken about this as well. I don't think anyone's quite got it right. Hawthorne mm. was fantastic and highly invested in the material, but never the most polished of artists. That that's for sure. Mm. Douillet was just insane and French. <laughs> yeah. Took off, uh, took off with it into his own visuals and and. Uh, the, the chap who wrote the script for the original French Guillet thing didn't didn't fit it clearly into Mike's canon or anything. Anyway, it's, uh, yeah, I don't think anyone's got it entirely right. Frank Brunner did some good stuff. Uh, it was still at Marvel, I think. Again, could have been better. So, yeah, I think we're better off visualising the books for ourselves when we read them. And um, I don't know whether any TV or movie adaptation could really live up to them either. Mm. Yeah, we spoke. Of, I think we spoke about Craig Russell last time, didn't we, Simon? And yeah. that um, it's psychedelic, and some of it's really sumptuous and beautiful, but it verges on a little bit goofy mm-hmm. at times. A bit and, cartoony, yeah. Yeah, and and the um, the Julian Blendell stuff, the artists that have been doing the painted artwork for that, it's really beautiful. It's really dark. It's really gothic, but it's too dark and too gothic, and loses the psychedelic angle. And ideally, you want something. A little bit down the middle, and yeah, I don't think anybody's really kind of carried yeah. it off yet, which is a shame. And I have to say, the writers on that French material they also went off in their own direction, and very quickly for me, it just wasn't Elric. Agreed. It was too murderous and merciless, yeah. and, and lost that idealism. That Elric. Yeah, I, I think the, the core of Elric's character is he, he rejects Melanie Bonnet and his. Uh, whereas in in the the Blondel versions, he's fully a murderous Melnibanean, and yeah, I, I think we spoke about that before as well. I, I don't think it really. I mean, Moorcock himself has said it's the Elric he would have written himself at the time had he. Uh, but I think Moorcock's always really generous. With he's people. very generous, I think, and 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 really, I mean, in his Facebook persona, he's been quite critical of those French series, right? Hawthorne one that's just come out. Where the Grand Britannians don't wear masks huh? has really annoyed him. I mean, Moorcock has basically turned his back on that Hawkman series. I right. should speak for himself, not speak for him, but I know yeah. what he said. Yeah. Um, when he saw the artwork, which he was not, he was not consulted on this change. Clearly, like an actor who wants his face to be seen on screen, the artists on the Hawkmoon project wanted to draw faces of their characters expressing emotion and so forth. Right. And they just went ahead and did it. No masks. And uh. so much of the meaning of Grand Britain within the Hawkmoon story is to do masking itself, mm. hiding your feelings away and, and a society built on that. It really lost something. And, and Mike was, mm, 
unhappy. I was aware that there was a French adaptation of Hawkmoon, but I've not seen it. And I'm, I'm not on Facebook, so I've not seen any of this stuff. But I don't get it. I don't understand why they do that. I mean, if you, if you want some expressive Grand Britannian action, in The Jewel in the Skull, you've got plenty of time with Melidas with his mask off at Castle Brass. They, they take their masks off um, private, don't they? And Yeah. Yeah. I, I compare it to Sylvester Stallone when he agreed to. Yeah, I'll play Judge Shred, but obviously I'm not wearing that bloody helmet all the time. Yeah. My wonderful face. Yeah. And I'm sure producers at the studio felt they were spending enough millions on Stallone that they wanted the audience to see his face as well. Mm. I think a similar phenomenon uh, with Hawk Moon, but it doesn't make as much sense because there's no million-dollar actor's face to show. Stick decision based on wanting these people to express emotion. Well, if you write the damn thing properly, you don't need them to show their faces. Yeah. But if you write Hawkmoon properly, they damn well shouldn't show their faces in public. Yeah. So when they do show their face, it really means something. Yeah. I'll give them a pass if the drama lied us looking like Peter Wingard. But <laughs> other than that, no pass is available. But it's interesting that, isn't it? Because the Judge Dredd movie, I mean, I think I could have almost forgiven it, but then they cast Rob Schneider in it as well, so that was completely done for me. But the the Halo TV series recently has been another interesting one where they've taken a, a, a masked character whose face has never been seen in any of the media. Oh. And not only do they have his mask off, but you see he's his, his naked for, <laughs> for at least half one episode. You see his butt, the works. Which, <laughs> to be fair, brilliant body, incredible butt. And my partner, Phil, she thought it was wonderful. But... <laughs> Huge kind of backlash on that. I mean, actually, I actually quite, I actually quite like the Halo TV series. I thought it was all right. I thought there were there were more problems in it than Master Chief being unmasked. But on the whole, I thought it was really good. But the, not the dr- something I've seen. But um, the Mandalorian show within the Star Wars universe, mm. big deal about do you take your mask off? And yeah, of course they had him take his mask off more than he was supposed to by the rules of his order. Yeah, um, yeah, but it, it, to be fair, they made it a huge plot point, and uh, they wrote around it. And yeah, you know, that's an okay approach, I guess. Mm-hmm. Didn't like the series particularly. Yeah, well, I think the first time they did it, it was it was for a really important emotional beat, wasn't it? Where he was severely injured, and the second time it was so he could have some interplay with Bill Burr, <laughs> which <laughs> was that in the second series? <laughs> I can't remember. But you're a big fan, Simon. Weighing on the Mandalorian. Oh, I love it. Um, but I, I was saying, uh, I think last time we spoke, I'm a very easy audience. Yeah. <laughs> you show me some Star Wars stuff. I'm yeah. very, very, uh, very happy. But I think a lot of the time that's not, um, I'm, I'm blanking on the, um, I'm blanking on the actor. Pedro Pascal. Pedro Pascal. A, a lot of the time it's stuntmen and, you mm. know, it's the same with the, uh, you getting Iron Man and, and stuff. Your, your main actor is just, just doing the, the voice and stuff. The so so we're talking about a, th- a third comic adaptation of Hawkmoon. This is the, the the third time it's been done, right? It is, yeah, because Cawthorn did it, and then it was done in that era of first comics. Yeah, and uh, if, and now it's the third one. If my memory is correct, in the American one, the first comics one, I think there's quite a lot of unmasked Grand Britannian stuff, or the, or sometimes sometimes the masked are depicted as having. Like a big hole for the face. Am I remembering that correct? Do you know, I really can't remember having made such a fuss uh, sort of on Mike's behalf about that. <laughs> really, really can't remember. I, I, I think they did. I mean, I, 
you know citation I needed, I, but I, I think they do. Uh, yeah. but it's 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 that whole thing of yeah, how are we going to show any any emotion? But like the the Cawthorn stuff, I don't think they do it at all in that. And you know, it's the the kind of weirdness and the strangeness of it absolutely yeah. comes across with you know these these faces. And and again, you're talking about a film version that would be something I think they'd struggle with. You know, that's a good point, actually, isn't it? The mm. the BBC series they've handed back the rights, and we've been wondering for the last three years how they would deal with the history of the room mm. stuff on the BBC. Mm. Mm. Yeah, would they have gone for entire, you know, with the odd exception of Malidas at Castle Brass, would they have gone with fully masked Grand Britannians right the way through? Mm. Probably mm. not. Probably not. not. Yeah, mm. but you, you also mentioned uh, guy um, Frank Brunner. And I don't think we talked much about Frank Brunner last time around, but I think Frank Brunner's fully painted artwork, and it it probably came to me originally from seeing it on the Stormringer role-playing game box uh-huh. cover, which is the um, the picture of Elric where he's got Stormbringer held up across his head, he's got the big helmet. Okay. I love Frank Brunner's style, I love the painted style, I love the technique, I think it looks wonderful, but Elric always looks like a 65-year-old, overly tanned rock star in those pictures. <laughs> he never looks like a 20-year-old, albino, tortured emo kid. He, he always looks like, I don't know, Johnny Winter after too long at the beach <laughs> or something. You know, so, so while I love his style, he never really captured Elric for me either. No, it's, it's, it's never been that great, has it, really? Mm. Who was it who did the covers for the Daw editions and the... Millennium editions. The name is on the tip of my tongue. There was a guy called Brom. Is it Brom? Or yeah, Brom Whelan. was Michael Whelan. Whelan did a lot of the dark covers and the Panther covers, but when the Millennium, this is really my brain is Bob terrible. Gould. Bob Gould. Yeah, Bob we, Gould. we never mentioned Bob Gould last time around, and I think he's probably, really good. Yeah, I think his covers, and particularly he did a cover for, and it's it's not one of Moorcock's best Elric books, I don't think, but it was originally. He did a cover for the the Scrailing Tree, which got retitled mm. to the Albino in America, mm. which is absolutely beautiful painting. And the Millennium Editions of Elric of Melnibonair, his cover for Revenge of the Rose, absolutely beautiful, yeah. beautiful artwork. Yeah. I'm still not convinced. It's right for my picture of Elric in my in my brain, but still, really, really fabulous artwork that we could. We spent two hours just about talking about Michael Mocock book covers last last time around and forgot to mention Bob Gould. Ah, well, no, he's great, yeah. 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 So, it's the 1980s. You're working as a GP, and 1989, you're writing your own comic based upon Mocock characters. So, how did it come around that you end up writing not only a, a comic using Mocock characters, but it's Mocock endorsed? How did that come to pass? Well, it started in 1977 at the height of punk. And I had um, possibly even 76, actually. And it started with a guy called Hunter Tremaine. And Hunter was a friend of mine in uh, London. He worked at the legendary dock they were in Golden. I don't know if that's something that a London shop started off, I believe, as a market stall selling comics and science fiction books. I never knew it in that incarnation. When I first went there, I was about 14, and it was a small shop on Berwick Street in the heart of Soho. And a few years later, it moved to a slightly larger premises on, a, on an alleyway called St. Anne's Court, which is a very Soho kind of alleyway. 
the other side of it, there would be ladies, ladies of night, sometimes even in the daytime, leaning out of the windows and talking to each other and shouting down to us innocent young fellows below. <laughs> it was very Soho. It's a legendary shop. They had science fiction and fantasy books on the ground floor, and their books manager, at least a lot of the time, was Stan Nichols, who wrote the Orcs books of the chat. He got pretty successful with his Orcs and still is, I believe. And uh, so ground floor, science fiction and fantasy books, in the basement, the comics, and there was, a, there was an upper floor at St. Anne's Court as well. And I think on the first floor, you, you went through a portal into a, another level of reality, really. Uh, most mere mortals like myself very rarely went up there, which is probably a good thing. So I don't, I don't think our minds could really grasp that alternate way of seeing and being that went on up there. It was, it was something else. So as dark they were and golden-eyed, absolutely legendary. And Hunter was uh, a comics fanatic, and he put together a fanzine in, I think it was 76, called Kid Stuff. Actually, I, could, I should be able to tell you the date. I've got a copy here somewhere. And the co-editor with him was a very good friend of his who was a very talented artist called Andy Johnson. And Andy drew the cover, get this right, the mm. cover of Kid Stuff 1, which I've sent you. And that's the first appearance of the man elf. So he looks very different. And on the cover of that fanzine, he's, uh, he's beating up or possibly even killing Spider-Man and the <laughs> character Ali Sloper, who was one of the first British characters in the 1860s, 1870s to appear in co comic strips on a regular basis and cartoons and, and, and got his own magazine. A very important early character. So Andy Johnson visualised this character coming along and, and I think being the future of comics, killing off the Marvel American-style superheroes, killing off British comics and being something new. And Andy was very avant-garde. He, he did his own comics, which were far out, absolutely far out. He worked with uh, Savage Pencil, if you remember Savage Pencil from Sounds magazine so, and other, and other um, artists who are really pushing the envelope of what comics could do in those days. And Kid Stuff had only the one issue. It never had any more issues. But Hunter asked me if, when he was planning to put together a second issue, could we do a comic strip about the Manuel? So the Manuel was absolutely his character. And it was his idea to co-star him with Jerry Cornelius and Miss Brunner and the other Moorcock characters. And he asked Mike at a signing at Dark They Were and Golden Eyed uh, if we could use the characters. And he, somehow, he talked Mike into it. Now, you mentioned that Mike is very generous. And at that time, Mike was allowing people to write prose stories of Jerry Cornelius, as mm. we know, right? So you've got your M. John Harrison's and lots of other people writing Cornelius stories. So Mike said, sure, you know, run, run it past me before you publish it. But yeah, go ahead, do, do it. And uh, Hunter wrote a script and I drew it. And I sent you some scans. Mm. Uh, very amateurish, just embarrassingly amateurish. Now. Well, you say embarrassingly. <laughs> Actually, we were but, not saying that when but we, we saw were not it. saying that a while back because you sent them through and I was I was I was looking at them and I was reading the credits and I was thinking hang on a minute guy wrote it in the late 80s but Hunter wrote the first one Hunter wrote the first one and you illustrated it and I illustrated it yeah 
So to your mind, it might be amateurish, but we were looking at it and cooing <laughs> over it. Well, I, in a way, I'm, I'm probably glad it wasn't published, but um, uh, it, for fanzine, it was probably pretty good, I suppose. Uh, I couldn't really draw. You know, I could copy stuff from photographs. I could try and ink like Brian Bolland, not succeed, but try. And, and uh, typical of, of fanzine material, really. And so it would have found its place in, in, in Kid Stuff number two if that had ever been published, but sadly it wasn't. Hmm. But yeah, we, we had the Cornelius characters in there. And um, a few years later, also completely down to Hunter, I had a second crack at it. But by this time I was working, and by this time I was actually a junior doctor in hospital working harder than any young human being ever should have to in some mm. stressful existence. And I realized it took me ages to draw a page of Manel, sometimes weeks. Uh, very painstaking, rubbing stuff out, starting again. But I thought maybe I could write a story and get someone else to draw it. And that's when Matt Brooker came into it. Matt Brooker, who uses the pen name Disraeli, mm. And at that time was just starting to do his own stuff in fanzines and don't think he'd self-published any comics by that point, but he did go on to self-publish a lot of really good comics that he wrote and drew mostly. And of course, later on went into 2000 AD and he mm -hmm. did all the places with Ian Edgington and, yeah. and some sequels. And I mean, he's fantastic. He is in black and white, in color, he's a fantastic artist. And he drew for me, a, I think an eight page story of Man Elf, and I took some aspects of the character that Hunter had invented, but basically did my own thing with it. Um, so when we published the Man Elf comics, eventually I think I said something like, an earlier version of Man Elf was created by Hunter Tremaine, because I felt I did something quite different. I had no idea where Hunter was going to go with it. He was very violent, and, and I don't think he had any dialogue at all in that fanzine story. He was more like a sort of force of nature, mm. supposed to be some kind of antichrist, or he was thought of as something. That's how Miss Brunner talks about it. Mm. I have no idea where Hunter was going to take that, but I, I took it in my own direction. So that was 86 or 87. And just to give a bit more detail about that, the strip was supposed to run in a, an anthology comic called Borderline. And Borderline had its eye on being the new 2000 AD or the new warrior. Warrior had come along and tried to be a slightly more grown-up 2000 AD, published, of course, early Alan Moore with Miracle Man and V for Vendetta. Fantastic stuff by um, Steve Parkhouse, David Lloyd on V for Vendetta, Gary Leach and Alan Davis on, on Marvel Man, and a lot of other great material. And uh, by 86, you had the success of what we used to call the Big Three, Mouse, Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns. So other people are starting to think, oh, maybe we should be uh, putting a bit of spare, spare money that we've got from the property market or whatever into a new comics magazine. Maybe there's a future in this. And that's how Borderline almost happened, but it didn't quite. The finance pulled out. Um, so my version of Man Elf, written by me and drawn by Matt Israeli Brooker, never saw the light of day. Mm. One episode was finished, and uh, when I dug it out from 
my storage facility, also known as a fairly damp garage, but it's <laughs> well. Um, uh, I was surprised to find there's a, a four or five page extra story we did as well, which was supposed to be the first short story. So I'd, we planned the saga of the man, also planned uh, some short stories to spin off from it. Anyway, the main one last thing about Borderline, lots of good people involved with Borderline, but the two who get remembered are Neil Gaiman and Dave McKean. And they were drafted in by Hunter, who was um, very good at kind of networking in the, in the comic scene. He was still around Dark Little and Golden Eye and then Forbidden Planet. And uh, he, he brought in a lot of good people. And uh, Gaiman and McKean really got on well, and they teamed up and did books like Violent Cases and Mr. Punch and then Black Orchid for DC. And they both got, they both became extremely well-known, Gaiman doing Sandman and McKean being the main cover artist for Sandman. So that, that team-up really came out of Borderline and might never have happened. If it wasn't. Mm. That's what people remember about Borderline. And other things like Man Elf and, and, and other strips that were being developed, including strips that were being developed by Gaiman and McKean with other writers, with Hunter writing with other people, just never happened. So that was in 86, 87, I guess. And then um, the next part of the story is when the people who actually published five issues of Man Elf came along. And I guess that was 89, 89, 90. And they were a company called Neptune, and they had the line of comics called Trident Comics. And there's, uh, if you want me to go into, into that, there's there's yeah story there. So. Yeah. Please do. I was going to ask you about Trident Comics anyway, so yeah. nice Good. segue. Nice segue. Okay. So coming out of Dark They Were and Golden Eyed, um, their main competitor, who I think probably put them out of business, who probably wouldn't have existed without Dark They Were and Golden Eyed coming first, was Forbidden Planet. And Forbidden Planet started up, I don't know if it was around the same time, I don't know which came first, but Titan distributors starting started distributing American comics. And uh, they supplied the, the news for a comic book specialist shop market with, with their American product. And they also started their line of books. Uh, and it, it's all gone on to great things. But Neptune came along and said, well, we think we can undercut Titan. We think we can do it better than Titan. I was thinking back on this. Titan, the Titans came before the Greek gods, right? And the Greek gods killed off the Titans and became the new gods. Not to get too Jack Kirby about it, but there they were, the next generation. And you got Zeus and Poseidon and all those people. And Neptune was the god of the sea. Of the Romans, he took over from the Greek Poseidon. And I think uh, Neptune distributors, um, with their trident comics, with their three-pronged stick, they were going to stick it to Titan. They were going to defeat Titan and take over the British comics distribution market and have their own line of comics. Didn't quite work. They did pay. They paid their writers and artists. And you got people like Grant Morrison, Paul Grist, Mark Millar, wrote some of his earliest professionally published stuff for Trident. They put out some good material. They got some of the best artists like Nigel Kitchen, who's a fabulous artist, who was also involved with Borderline, I remember. And at this point, 
I teamed up with a good friend of mine called Steve Whitaker, and he he was the artist for for the New Man Elf comic, and uh, he he was fantastic, just a fantastic artist. He's probably best known as one of the three colorists on V for Vendetta, when DC Comics took the black and white strip that had run in Warrior and started publishing it as a color American comic. David Lloyd couldn't do all the coloring himself. And he recruited Steve Whitaker and I believe a young woman called Siobhan Dodds, I think was the other lady. I may have got the name wrong, to help him out. And, and Steve, once he proved he could do it, Steve did a lot of pages completely on his own. And he was fantastic. He was a fantastic colorist. And that led to a lot of other coloring work. His sketchbooks were full of the most gorgeous drawings of superheroes and Greek gods and aliens. But he couldn't make a deadline and he had real problems laying out a page of narrative because he was a perfectionist. And, and if he wasn't as good as Joe Kubert, who was one of his great heroes, he would tear pages up and start again, over and over again. And he didn't make deadlines. So he ended up only doing two issues of Man Elf, which is a great shame because I thought was going to be his calling card to the business and he was going to really become successful off the back of Man Elf. So did his old college friend, Brendan McCarthy, who, as I'm sure you know, has had a, a fabulous career. In mm. And also as the right co-writer and designer of Mad Max Fury Road. Fury Road, yeah. It was a, it was a very odd, uh, when I found out that was Brendan McCarthy, I thought, blimey, so is it must be the same guy. And it was. Yeah. Anyway, Brendan very kindly drew the pencil drawing that Steve inked for the cover of Man Elf. Uh, number one, and he helped Steve to overcome some of his mental blocks by actually finishing drawing a whole comic and handing it in, even perhaps wasn't entirely perfect, but bloody hell, it was perfect enough. It was fantastic, especially that first issue. To be fair to Matt Brooker, the first half of that comic, Steve had Matt, Matt's version of the story, which we followed very closely, to bounce off, to work yeah. from. You know, so I think that probably helped a lot. Uh, and is not widely known. Uh, all those, all that about the origin of Man Elf and Kid stuff is not widely known because the comic was not a great success. So I don't get to talk about it very often. It's it's great to have the opportunity. Uh, and apart from anything else, it's great to have the opportunity to to pay a huge tribute to Steve Whitaker, mm. who sadly died a little over ten years ago. Um, right. Very sad. At a relatively young age, fifty-one, I think. Right. I've got to say, the the art from issue three onwards, I think, maintains a similar style and I think has its own merits. But the, the Steve Whitaker art, in particular, when I, because, of course, the first issue I came across was issue three, which didn't have yes. Steve Whitaker art. Yeah. So when I, when I got... I can't remember which one I got first, either one or two. I think it was one, because it was the one where you have essentially character portraits. Yes, in, that's in, right. Pa- panel character portraits at the end. Um, yeah. I was absolutely, I was, I was blown away by by his his style and his take yeah. on the characters, and yeah, it's and I didn't realize it passed either. Um, but I'd looked him up and seen that he'd done the coloring on on V for Vendetta, mm. and it's it's wonderful work. Yes, it is wonderful work. Yeah, yeah. Now Richard Weston was from up your way. He was from the Hull area. I lost touch, ah. lost touch with him a long time ago. Sadly. Uh, yeah, well, I, I did a little search for him on <clears throat> on, um, on Tinterwebs, and I couldn't find anything. No, I, he seems to have disappeared as far as any public persona goes. 
he was a very, very talented artist. One of the problems with Manoff was he felt he had to try and emulate Steve Whitaker's style up to a point. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, nobody asked him to, but um, but as far as I know, uh, the editor Martin Skidmore, lovely chap, also died very young, sadly, uh, some years back. Martin came out of fanzines. He was the editor of Fantasy Advertiser for a long time, or FA as it became. And uh, Neptune took over FA and tried to get it onto a more profitable basis and a more regularly published basis. And they took Martin on as the editor of their comics line. And I think he was a pretty good editor. I, I have no knowledge that he ever asked Richard to emulate Steve, but I think artists kind of feel to some extent, some kind of responsibility to the people who, who came before them. Mm. In comics. And I think if we, if, we, we did three issues together, Richard and I, and we finished book one. The first five comics were a self-contained story. And there were planned to be two more books of five comics each. It was tightly planned out. And uh, Richard's artwork for the, f- the first few pages of issue two, which we put together, by that point, tried the comics gone down the tubes. We put it together hoping that someone else might publish it, but nobody bit. Right. His artwork was really coming into its own, and he was, you know, leaving Steve Whitaker's shadow behind, as it were. And uh, it's a damn shame we didn't get a chance to continue it. Yeah, where the story was going, and uh, uh, and the first book, in a sense, is just the beginning, and it was going to go through some big changes, narrative-wise, story-wise, as well. So, great shame, really. But yeah, I I was going to ask you about um, potential continuations but i suppose for for the uninitiated who might be listening to this we probably should talk about what saga of the man elf is actually about and actually it it fits into one of my favorite fields of speculative fiction which is britain is fucked yeah (laughs) (laughs) and i I absolutely love that stuff and i also had to laugh at one of the letters in one of the later issues uh, because there are quite there are some really this should be any mocock fans collectible list this should be high on their collectibles list and most and a lot of mocock fans don't really know it existed mm. but you've got the intro from mocock where he's talking about cornelius you, you've got a really terrific essay essentially about the cornelius chronicles i think in in issue two yeah. there are four articles reviewing deep fix and michael mocock solo albums in the pages of melody maker and sounds which are wonderful but you've also got these letters pages where somebody says, uh, somebody writes in and says, "Ah, oh, did you take inspiration from V for Vendetta?" And you, uh, you, you very articulately say, "Well, you know, lots of people are writing about these things at the same time." But of course, we covered the Black Corridor not too long ago, and Mocox and, and Hillary Bailey are writing is writing a uh, Britain is politically fucked story in the yeah. late sixties, which is absolutely brilliant. So it it, it kind of occupies that space um, of of fiction for me, which I have a deep love for. But, and actually, which occurs, essentially, is is the basis of all Jerry Cornelius novels anyway. But just explain the plot of um, Saga of the Man-Elf, book one. It's definitely definitely an anti-Thatcher rant. (laughs) Miss Miss Brunner uh, takes the place of of Thatcher. She's, She's risen through the ranks of Parliament and society has gone to hell in a handbasket, whatever a handbasket is. And bucket everything's gone to gone to shit, as you say. And she's ended up as a prime minister with a, a promise to end the chaos. And she's teamed up with Frank Cornelius, 
who's been running a military dictatorship but realizes that it's unsustainable without some sort of political structure. So it has all sorts of echoes of Chile and, and other things where the military and the right have gone into appalling totalitarian political alliances. And Miss Brunner is trying to sugar this right-wing government, which is essentially run between her and the military. And she comes up with this insane plan to, um, to use some kind of magical energies linked to the King Arthur myth. And this all revolves around the mysterious half-human character of the man-elf. He's an attempt to bring something almost superheroic into Mike's world of fantasy. So he's more elfin than the Melnibonians. He's got sort of cat's eyes and pointy ears, and he's got a variety of, sort of superpowers that, uh, that make him a, almost like a superhero figure. But he's also linked to some past civilization. And a lot more of that was going to come out in book two and book three. I think I, I, I haven't reread Man Elf in a long, long time, but um, I think we dropped book one. Uh, Miss Brunner misinterprets his, his links to uh, an apparently magical past civilization that has apparently died out as being something to do with King Arthur and fairy and so on. And she tries to make use of him. And uh, it all goes horribly wrong. And somebody from a plane of godlike beings messes around with the earthly plane. And Bishop Beasley, one of our favorite mortal characters, gets turned into a parody of himself, <laughs> a gigantic slug-like Lovecraftian monster and goes on a rampage. And they have to drop a nuke on him. <laughs> Um, our heroes managed to, if not save the day, at least save the tragic mother of the man-elf and fly off in an airship. They're obviously flying into further adventures. Bishop Beasley has been nuked, but Frank and Miss Brunner are still around, and Mitzi Beasley. And Una Person is around as the, the heroic uh, rebel figure. And the man-elf, Janus, Janus Carpenter, uh, hero-worships Una. He... He wants to be Una's best mate, and he wants to fight be beside her in the cause of right, which is very much seen as a left-wing cause, fighting against Thatcherism in book one. Uh, but things were going to change uh, as it went forward. What, what have I missed, having not read the damn thing in years? <laughs> I think it sums it up nicely, and I think anybody who's listening to this who's not aware of it will be instantly rushing to eBay to try and find <laughs> copies of this. And and um, you, you've actually reminded me that, with some of the descriptions, that Richard's art in the subsequent episodes is really, in places, really wonderful, <laughs> because the, the depiction of kind of crazy, the thing style, Lovecraftian Beasley, is brilliant. There's also some really fantastic, quite saucy, almost Maldine-esque imagery that Richard produced for those later issues as well. I just think it's an absolute disaster that we didn't get book two, books two and no. three. It's a um, shame. It yeah. is a shame. Mike Michael Morcott was very kind in that he said that he thought I'd caught the essence of his character. And that 
made me so pleased because I wanted to put those characters who exist, let's face it, in a fairly avant-garde literary space, and I wanted to put them into popular fiction hmm. that people could have an easy read, an easy, quick read, but fall in love with those characters or love to hate those characters and, and want to follow them back into Mike's fiction. That, that was my mission with that thing, really. Mike was very generous, as we said before, and, but he, he said that I got the essence of them, and that's praise indeed. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the thing is, we've got tons of Elric comics. We've got tons of Eternal Champion-style comics. Of course, Mike has, has written some of these comics himself. He's, he's done, I think he, did he write The Making of a Sorcerer? I can't remember yes. what it's called. He did the Mocox Multiverse stuff. Yes. But outside of the Maldine strips, how often have we ever had those characters appear in comics? Yeah. They, they do crop up in, in Moorcock's multiverse here and there. And, uh, to some it's extent, it's, it's like fleeting glimpses, fleeting really, glimpses. isn't it? Whereas what we get in Saga and the Man-Elf is we get some really solid, consistent characterization of those characters for the first time in the comics medium. Yeah, Which... it's it's not just the names, is it? It's not yeah. just a cute cameo popping up in a, a story right. where you could get rid of them and it wouldn't make any difference. I think they're they're really sort of essentially th those characters. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we were talking last time. Uh, me and Andrew talked about it. Yeah, it is good to see adaptations. How sort of artists kind of take a story that you know and how they adapt it and. You know they'll do things you like, they'll do things you don't like, but it'll it'll never like we were saying it it'll never match up to what you had in your head when you're mm. reading a novel. And I feel like this saga of the man elf is absolutely essential to a Morcock fan because it's not adapting a story that you've already read and yeah. you've decided on how how it looks. You know it's it's this sort of new take, and people don't know about it. Like I um mm. when I whenever I've had calls to Google jerry cornelius image images this comes up and i don't and ah. i never knew what it was you mm -hmm. know um i'd like being commissioned to do a couple of jerry cornelius uh paintings and, and drawings for for andrew for the podcast mm. and yeah you can go on the the book covers but I'm like well where else has this character appeared obviously there's the film but other other than that it's not like elric where there's like a, mi a million different mm. Uh, depictions and yeah this this was popping up i was like i have no idea what this is what is the man elf and is it if is it official does more does morcock know <laughs> you know because i know he, he has had issues with uh some people using his characters or using or creating characters that are sort of thinly veiled versions of cornelius you know yeah um, yeah once Jerry cornelius particularly appears in this from issue three onwards and of course that's the first issue that I came across and then once i got issue one where it has the moorcock introduction and endorsement i'm not sure you can ever talk about canon when it comes to to moorcock stories because everything is so wild and the multiverse is so wild but this feels canonical for these characters and for me and again people who listen to this podcast generally moorcock fans you've got to go out and, and and track these comics down on ebay because they're they're tremendous and it's it's interesting that kind of people's introductions to um Moorcock characters come from a variety of different angles and we've talked about role playing games and and Jerry Cornelius doesn't really get any um or the the characters of Jerry Cornelius don't really get any 
uh, any love in the role-playing game sphere either. It's always Elric, a little bit of Hot Moon, mm. a tiny, tiny bit of Corum. Um, I don't think Ericos has even got any feature in, in the role-playing game area. But if we think about Mocock in other media, other than, other than novels and short stories, comics, tons of it. But again, the Jerry Cornelius character's tiny, tiny corner of that with the Maldine comics. Mm. Yet here we are, we have it laid open with uh, with an all-new story and an all-new approach and an all-new setting, but that feels entirely consistent with something that Mocock would do. And it's in, and it's got Mocock's endorsement. You know? I should add, of course, that each step of the way, when there was a, a chance of uh, a man elf getting into print, so Hunter approached Mike in the first place, I approached Mike all over again when, when it was possible that Borderline might use the characters. And then, of course, we tried and yet again went back to Mike and said, oh, are you okay with me to try and take this project forward? You know, And, and I'm, I'm glad to hear what you both said about that because there was one point where it was suggested that to continue the story, I should sort of novelise it, make it into a series of novelettes or novels. Hmm. And um, it seemed Im- impractical to, to actually have the Cornelius character. And someone said, well, that's right, just thinly veiled copies. And it's like, no, forget it. Hmm. These are the Moorcock characters. This is this is Frank. There's no way that I'm, I'm going to even think about uh, pretending they're somebody else and, and rewriting it that way. So that, that was not that there was any real chance of that happening, but uh, you know, it was suggested that as a way forward, as a way of getting the story out there. And... Uh, that that didn't appeal at mm. all. It had to have the essence of, of the Cornelius crew. Yeah. I think although we bemoan the fact that we didn't get book two, I think whenever you're, and this is a fairly selfish thing that you always have, as a fan of things or somebody who's, who's into things, I think the fact that it is so um, exclusive adds to its panache. <laughs> you know? Uh, again, I would... I would Certainly recommend anybody who who is listening to this who is curious about what we're talking about and finds it intriguing, go out and find it, because it's terrific. It's not only terrific because it's a great comic and the art's great and the interpretations are good and and it satisfies my um my love of that kind of media anyway and that kind of story, but actually the whole package. The fur reviews in Melody Maker. Everything is so well considered. The introductions by Shaky Mo and Shaky Mo's interpretation in this comic is basically <laughs> Lemmy. <laughs> and, yeah. and, th- and that made me think. Hang on a minute. Is Shaky Mo Lemmy? Is that is that something that was done because of advanced knowledge that Shaky Mo was based on Lemmy, or was it something that was done for the comic? It was done for the comic. It was entirely uh, my idea, and. Not so long ago, Mike actually had occasion to say, no, uh, Shaky Mo is not Lemmy. He was based on, much more closely, on another character. I think it was a roadie. I thought Lemmy was perfect for Shaky Mo, anyway. Yeah. Playing, playing the part. I wouldn't say his character was Shaky Mo at all, but, but I thought for someone to play the part when Richard drew it, that's what, that's what I brought him in. Yeah. I read all his dialogue in Lemmy's voice. As well, I, I'm glad because so did I. Yeah, yeah. I wrote it, <laughs> and it absolutely worked for me. Yeah. 
So after after Manel finished, after you went through the process of, of working on subsequent volumes, books, what happened for you? Because the other thing I did, of course, when I was researching you on on the internet was to try and find other comics that you'd worked on, and I couldn't find anything on on no. the internet. So so what happened for you in terms of the comic industry and and your involvement? in in the world of comics post man elf now let me think i probably did a few bits and pieces for fanzines but not much uh reviews articles well i know i did but not many and really i had to throw myself quite fully into the world of medicine it's Mm. it's pretty all-consuming uh being a junior hospital doctor and then um being a, uh, training as a GP and being a GP, and all the comic stuff really went on the back burner. Mm. It just became a relatively serious fan, I suppose. So going to the comic conventions and the comic marts and hanging out with my tribe of uh, comics fans, there'd be uh, regular pub meetups and um, all sorts of socialising around that world. And so I never gave up a fairly intense, obsessive interest in it. For example, when, um, when Neil Gaiman, who I'd met in the borderline days, he became for a short while the chairman of something called the Comics Creators Guild. It was originally called the Society of Strip Illustrators, and then became the Comics Creators Guild. Neil was chairman for a little while. So we would meet up at, at these big gatherings of 20 or 50 people at, at a monthly meeting, a little bar, there's a committee meeting. I, I was on the committee for a little while. And then there'd be a lot of chat and there'd be guest speakers. So I saw a lot of Neil and a lot of other people around that time. But it was becoming less and less an organization for professionals and more and more an organization for fans. And um, I did a little bit of writing for them. I started a fanzine called Comics Forum, <clears throat> which was. Uh, financed by the Society of Strip Illustration and me, kind of jointly financed. And between us, we we um, we published a good dozen issues, and then I had to leave, and it was carried on by other people. But officially, it was uh, the quarterly journal of the Comics Creators Guild. That was fun. I mean, we my favourite issue of Comics Forum was number six when. I was working on putting together a Superman special issue, and I got quite a few really fairly a mixture of serious and humorous articles about Superman, lots of great drawings. And then Jack Kirby died, and it had to be partly a Jack Kirby tribute issue as well. And it turned out just a very solid fanzine, which I was very proud of. But um, it was hard to keep the momentum going and have a medical career. So eventually I just dropped out completely of all that sort of thing. There were no more comics as far as I can remember. No, I don't think there were any more comics. So you, you continued your medical career? I continued my medical career and I was um, very happy in it. But I think I could only be happy in it once I'd, once I'd given up any aspiration to do anything professional mm-hmm. and, and really throw myself fully into the medicine. Yeah. Well, as... as uh, Some very yeah. good years. Yeah, as... as... By profession, a registered nurse. Um, ah. I feel you in terms of the work that you've done over the years and the passion and and the skill and the commitment that you have to have to the cause 
So power, power to you for that. Well, I, I didn't know you were from the world of nursing, so power to you too. I mean, God, looking back as a junior doctor, going in with a lot of theoretical knowledge and not a lot of practical knowledge, the extent to which my colleagues and I relied upon and leaned upon and learned from our nursing colleagues is huge, absolutely huge, and not often acknowledged. I think we we share a deep love for the NHS and uh, and everything it stands for. Yeah. So, you know. Absolutely. I will raise my fist. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Simon, do you have any more questions for Guy? Don't. Um I mean I I would just reiterate the kind of recommendation for this comic. Um I I did look it up in um I I mean I don't know you might want to cut this out. But <laughs> I don't know if you're aware of the Slings and Arrows comics guide. I've got about half a dozen reviews in that. I wish I had time to do more, but yeah. Well, I, I won't. I won't read out uh, the the Man Elf entry because I'm sure you're familiar with it. But it does. It does to to press it, it. It basically says you tackle Moorcock's characters a lot better than some of the uh, uh, prose fiction uh, writers who've uh, handled it. Um, as someone who's um, always really been into comics, I would recommend this to anyone who's got an interest in that sort of late 80s, early 90s British, what we call the indie scene. Like Steve's art in particular, it's very reminiscent of uh, Philip Bond and Glyn Dillon, these artists yeah. I was I was very, uh, you know, big fans of. And I, w- w- look, looking up Steve, it is a crying shame he didn't do more work because yeah. it's absolutely fantastic. And yeah, it's, it's, it's noted that you know, people in the know think he's brilliant. And but there's barely any work of his out there, and obviously now we know the reason why he was way too much of a perfectionist. You know, he was, he was. yeah. Um, uh, such a shame they couldn't overcome those, which were essentially psychological barriers, I think, because mm. um, he certainly had the drawing chops. Yeah, and uh, it is a shame, and and much missed amongst all his friends as well. Uh, a, a lovely guy too. Mm. I think we'll we'll uh, we'll dedicate the show to Steve Whitaker. I think that's very appropriate. Thank you, Andrew. Well, you know what, Guy? It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on to talk about Saga of the Man-Elf. And thanks for coming on. All we can say is, whilst we mourn the lack of books two and three, we will treasure what we do have. And again, we recommend anybody out there as a Moorcock fan to actually track these comics down because they are out there and they do pop up on eBay on a semi-regular basis. Although They do? I must say, more recently, they've been getting a little bit more tricky. And I think the last time I saw oh. them, they were in Canada. And, which, interestingly, I seem to recall they were printed in Canada. So maybe maybe Canada is is a hot sauce. Well, if that's so, I'd completely forgotten it. But it, it, I think that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure one of the pages says printed in Canada. So maybe maybe Canada is a hotbed or of so, copies. Someone yeah. found a crate of them, maybe. <laughs> yeah, Probably. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's hope so. I mean, yeah. they also turn up at comic marts, usually in the bargain bins. I <laughs> think I sometimes think people are overcharging for them. Fine, and uh, sometimes people unscrupulously say they're written by Morcock, which is right. Uh, um, best place to find them is in the fifty p bin at a comic mart. <laughs> if comic marts near you, and if no dealer has got them in their boxes, ask them if they've got some in their storage facility and they can bring some along next time because I think it's a fairly unsexy and unremembered comic and a lot of dealers might 
get them in in when they're buying collections and possibly not even put them out for sale. So uh, I think uh, the appropriate way to find them is in the 50p bins. I think that's which is exactly where I found my first copy of issue three. There so you go. If, if if you can find it in in a a comic and record shop on Annerley B Road in Hull, they must be kicking Perfect. around somewhere. There must be. Yeah. Well, you know what, Guy? Thanks ever so much for coming on. It's been an yeah, Thank you pleasure. very much for having me on. It's been a huge pleasure. Lovely mm. to meet you. Lovely to talk about my old thing. Yeah. And thanks, Simon, for coming back on a second occasion in four weeks. Pleasure. All right, folks. Take care. Take care, man. Bye now. Cheers. Massive thanks to Simon for stopping by again, and of course to Guy for joining us in Derry and Tom's to talk about his work in comics and, in particular, his authorship of a fascinating comic that doubles as essential Mokokiana. Before we go, thanks as ever to our patrons, first, those without tear, Anthony Paconti, Sebastian Weetabix, Tim Carlos, and Dave Dempster, and our chaos engineers, Andrew C. Cluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Benjamin Fletcher, Dave Griffiths, Dave Voxman, Jim Kirkland, John W. Lays, Jules Lawrence, Lee Gary, Mal Pertwee, Mary Catherine, Matt Saltz, Menion, Nelbert, Paul McRandall, Scott Butler, Simon Perrins, of course, and Tony Milazzo. And thanks to our Jugaderos, Alexander Harris, Ian Stead, Loz, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Toby White, Tom Murphy, Mark Hebden, Graham Holden, and Jason Connolly. And finally, eternal thanks to our patron demons, Andy Darby, Clarky the Cruel, Fred Keish, Gareth Wilson, Gwen Barlow, Imria, Janie Stim, Jay Reza, Joe Monty, Liam Jay, Miles Reed Lobato, Mark Main, Neil Burton, Paul Hillary, Randall Gatlin, Steve Round, the OG patron, Norman Beresford, and last, but never least, the patron from the highest of higher worlds, Robert McMillan. It'll soon be 2023, so a happy new year from everyone at Derry and Tom's. But for now, enough yakking. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruins@outlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. You can listen to the Breakfast in the Ruins radio via the internet. We have our Patreon page too, and there are a few extra odds and sods on there. But that's it for now. We'll be back soon to pick up part two of The Devils of D-Day. But in the meantime, take care, stay safe, and we'll meet again soon in an all-new year on the Moonbeam Roads. <laughs>